This is Communication Matters, the NCA podcast. Hello, I'm Lakeisha Anderson, Director of Academic and Professional Affairs with the National Communication Association, and I'm your host on Communication Matters, the NCA podcast. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. Climate change is one of the most pressing issues facing the world today. According to a recent Pew Research survey, 64% of Americans believe that climate change is a top priority. However, there is often division along partisan lines, in part because people may evaluate scientific expertise and messaging differently. In addition, some communities may feel the effects from climate change more than others. Today's episode of Communication Matters, the NCA podcast, We'll delve into environmental communication with scholars Jose Castro Sotomayor, Edward Maybach, and Bridie McGreevy. First, a bit about today's guests. Jose Castro Sotomayor is an assistant professor in the Department of Communication at California State University, Channel Islands. Castro Sotomayor researches in the areas of environmental and intercultural communication, environmental governance, transboundary community organizations, Ecocultural Systems of Meaning and Identities, Critical and Decolonial Pedagogy, and Environmental Activism. With Tima Milstein, Castro Sotomayor is a co-editor of the Rutledge Handbook of Ecocultural Identity, which received the NCA Environmental Communication Division's 2020 Tarla Ray Peterson Book Award. Hi, Jose, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for the invitation. I'm glad to be here. Edward Maybach is a university professor and director of the Center for Climate Change Communication, or 4C, at George Mason University. Maybach's research, which has been funded by NSF, NASA, and private organizations, focuses on public understandings of climate change and clean energy, the psychology underlying public engagement, and cultivating TV weathercasters, health professionals, and climate scientists as effective climate educators. From 2011 to 2014, Maybach co-chaired the Engagement and Communication Working Group for the Third National Climate Assessment. Maybach advises myriad government agencies, museums, science societies, and civic organizations on their climate change public engagement initiatives. Hi, Ed, and welcome to Communication Matters. Hi, Lakeisha. Thanks for having me. Bridie McGreevy is an associate professor in the Department of Communication and Journalism and a faculty fellow in the Senator George J. Mitchell Center for Sustainability Solutions at the University of Maine. McGreevy studies how communication shapes sustainability and justice efforts in coastal shellfishing communities, river restoration and freshwater conservation initiatives, and diverse collaborations to address complex problems. McGreevy is also a lead investigator on a National Science Foundation-funded project focusing on environmental monitoring. Hi, Bridie, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks. It's great to be here. Jose, your recent edited volume focuses on ecocultural identity. What does that mean, and how does it help us gain further understanding about the relationship between humans and the environment? Well, the ecocultural identity is a concept and a framework that contributes to the ecological turn to sociocultural understandings of self. The ecocultural turn in conceptualizations of identity stems from assumptions that humans are made of, are part of, emerge from, and constantly contribute to both ecology and culture. 
So as the cultural beings we humans produce, uh, act upon, and constantly perceive and make meaning through both ecology and culture. So as a concept, Ecocultural identity differs from other eco-oriented approaches because I believe that's very important because you do find other kind of theorizations about the influence of the environment or nature. I prefer using the term more than human world when I talk about the environment and nature to not reproduce the binary and the separation between humans and humans or humans and environment. So we have kind of several examples of these eco-oriented identity theories, for instance, we have ecological identity, environmental identity, or green identity. However, these conceptualizations stem from social psychology, which could render some analytical limitations. First, for instance, these eco-oriented definitions require static definitions of ecology and the environment, which can be misinterpreted as separate spaces from humans. The second limitation is that individuals or groups must consciously pursue enacting these eco-oriented identities which leads us to a third analytical limitation, actually, that is that the ecological, green, or environmental identity are normative. Because, you know, the development of, the development of these identities and the realization of this kind of uh, sense of self depend on the individuals and groups' conscious engagement with behaviors that are considered environmentally friendly. For instance, recycling or buying local food production or participating in pro-environmental movements, or even enacting ways of living that show a deep and respectful connection to what we call nature. We can go even from actions like hoeing trees or becoming vegan, you know, some of those actions that are considered environmentally friendly or ecologically friendly. So it is important to know that ecocultural identity is not normative or ecocentric by default. So contrary to the ecological, environmental, or green identities, ecocultural identity is not prescriptive. And what I mean by this is that the actions associated with ecocultural identities are not always positive or beneficial to the environment. Let me give you an example. So in terms of ecocultural identity, a local farmer, a miner, a hunter, a logger, a surfer, an environmentalist, all have ecocultural identities as their sense of selves is defined by their beliefs, their values, their attitudes that inform how they act upon it and upon the more than human world in general. So as a framework, ecocultural identity framework helps to avoid kind of essentializing uh, ostensible environmentally friendly identities sometimes. For instance, think about a farmer who engages in an organic way of growing food. Right? Let's say in a way that is respectful and sustainable to the ecology of the place. This farmer would be performing what I would call kind of a regenerative ecocultural identity. But this ecocultural identity is different from a farmer that might engage in a more industrialized way of planting the crops with the sole purpose of massively produced food. So this farmer would be performing an exploitative ecocultural identity. So therefore, an ecocultural identity helps us to gain further understanding about the relationship between humans and the more than human world. And it challenges the very anthropocentric, human-centered assumptions on which the cultural is built and understood. And ecocultural identity seeks to understand humans at the intersection between the symbolic, which is the cultural, and the biotic, which is the ecology. One important thing is that ecocultural identity is, whether latent or conscious, as a concept, ecocultural identity is, is at the center of who we are as, as humans and informs our emotional, bodily, mental, and political sensibilities within and in relation to the wider world. 
And I would like to close, you know, let me close with an example, for instance, to how the concept and the framework of ecocultural identity can help understand the formation of new identities that directly emerge from the climate crisis that we're experiencing right now. For instance, identification of climate refugees is becoming more prominent in our political vernacular, for sure. However, what I notice is that when the issue of climate refugees is discussed, first, an undifferentiated nature or environment is the force that pushes people into their current conditions, right? Second, I usually notice that in the aftermath of, of a climate-induced catastrophe, climate refugees' new life situation is discussed mainly in cultural terms. You know, that is focusing on how they map or adapt or struggle with navigating the new cultural differences and political system in which they are kind of replaced in many ways. But if we consider and we think it through an ecocultural lenses, the shock is not only cultural, but it's always and already eco-cultural. So the, the ecological dimension, dimension is vital to understand the climate refugee condition and sense of self. Just imagine being displaced from an island and replaced in a city in the Texas panhandle, right? Or living nearby a California redwood forest that has been is gone because of the wildfires, and which forces people to relocate in a completely different environment. So therefore, the trauma is ecocultural because it is not only about the cultural loss, but also about the loss of the ecology and the web of life in which their sense of self, our value, and are historically entangled and, and connected to it. Thanks for explaining that. One of the things that you mentioned really struck a, a chord with me because I grew up in a community that is very mining and logging and farming focused and has certainly not been an area that's been concerned about the environment forever. But with the shutdown of a lot of mines, we're seeing people try to find another way to make a living. And so they've started to really capitalize on the ecotourism that's available in the area which I grew up because it's gorgeous. It's right in the central Appalachian mountains. There's a lot of hiking and waterfalls and just it's gorgeous land, but they've never really focused on that because they've been tearing the land up for a very long time. And now that they have to kind of refocus and reimagine what their life is going to look like there, it's interesting to watch how the change in identity and the change in how they feel about the environment has come about just in the past five, six years. It's been really interesting to watch people who maybe had absolutely no idea or were climate change deniers really come about a different way of thinking and and be very protective of the environment now. So that struck a a chord with me just because it's something I'm actually watching unfold. Even before, you know, even people who were engaged in those kind of economic activities, they actually have a particular orientation toward the environment which is kind of defined by how they perceive the environment. In this particular case, a very commodified environment, if you think about loggers or miners. So what, what you're describing here is basically a, a shift in their eco-cultural identity in terms of how they, they connect or reconnect sometimes with the modern human world that is kind of offering all these, these opportunities to changing their, their work or the way of living. That's definitely interesting to watch. Ed, you've done a lot of research on how the public understands climate change and how to improve public understandings in this critical area. Over your years of research, what trends have you seen? And have recent years seen more widespread acceptance that climate change is a scientific fact? 
Yeah, you know, my colleague Tony Lizeritz at Yale and I have been incredibly blessed to be able to run the Climate Change in the American Mind polling project for the past 13 years. We've been doing surveys every, pretty much every six months for 13 years now. We're on our 27th survey at the moment. And the benefit of that is we get to watch trends develop and uh, both the, the heartening ones and the disheartening ones. But you put your finger on it exactly right, Lakeisha. We've most, for the most part, it's been really heartening, right? We've watched what I call a, a climate awakening in America over that it was not that long ago, let's just say five or six or seven years ago, that the sort of the two ends of the continuum with regard to their views about climate change, we've identified six groups. We call them global warming six Americas. And they are pretty much a continuum from the group that we call the alarmed people like me and probably like you to people on the other end of the continuum that we call the dismissive people like perhaps some of your family members in, until recently. And both groups, the alarmed and the dismissive, we feel really strongly about the issue. We've just reached entirely polar opposite conclusions about climate change. And over the past five or six years, we've seen the one group, the alarm group, grow enormously. So let's just say six years ago, they were about 12% of the population, or give or take one out of one out of 10 of us were alarmed. Today, it's more like three out of 10. So almost a tripling of the size of that group over a very small period of time. Conversely, the dismissive group, which again, about six years ago, was about one out of 10, 12% to be exact, and they have contracted. They're down to about 7%. That's actually a finding that probably we wouldn't have anticipated. Once people make up their mind about something, it's it's pretty startling to see them change their mind. But, but as is the case with members of your family, some of them have been changing their mind. So that's the good news. We've seen this dramatic heightening of, of public engagement, public concern about climate change. On average, what we've seen is a shrinking of the psychological distance that Americans experience when they think about the issue. By psychological distance, I mean for pretty much the entirety of the time we've been doing this polling, most Americans have told us that climate change is real, but they saw it as a distant threat, distant in time, so maybe the year 2100, but not the year 2010, more or less when we started the poll, distant in space, so maybe sub-Saharan Africa, but not Cincinnati, and distant in species, perhaps mostly distant in species, polar bears for sure, but not people. So over the past 10 years or so, we've seen a real change in how people see the threat. They're coming, increasingly coming to see it as a here, now, us threat, as opposed to the way they previously seen it as a sometime in the future, somewhere else and to some other species. And that's a real game changer because once people recognize a threat as relevant to them, relevant to them and their loved ones, they start thinking about it differently. Here's the one disappointing trend over that 13 year period that we've watched. And that is, although there's been this enormous growth in concern about climate change, we haven't really seen an enormous growth in the proportion of the public who are engaging as citizens to advocate for climate action. So today on Capitol Hill and in state houses around the nation, you know, there are conversations about that are the right conversations trying to answer the question, what should we be doing about this? 
what should we be doing differently? What kinds of policies do we need to create real solutions to these problems? And so while elected officials see that more and more of their constituents are concerned about it, what they're not feeling is the increase in number of constituents who are contacting them, calling them, sending them emails, showing up in their offices on Capitol Hill or or in their home district. And that is really, you know, as best I understand the nature of political change, you need public will. We've clearly seen a growth in public will, but you need to mobilize public will if you want to create political will. And the mobilization happens when members of the public engage with their elected representatives. Just have a follow-up question for you. With the tripling of people who are starting to at least see that climate change is a is an issue and that it's important. Why do you think that that's happening? Like how important are things like the climate clock, for instance, in getting people to move over to the other side of, of their belief? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I have often said that climate change doesn't teach, it just punishes. It punishes us through extreme weather. It punishes us through a variety of different ways that in which it's harming our health. And for the longest time, we needed somebody to narrate that experience for us, to explain what's going on, to help us connect the dots that, yeah, in fact, I've lived here in my current home for 30 years and I, and I have noticed that the weather has gone kind of crazy. And it seems to be getting more dangerous. And so one thing that is driving the trend of increased engagement is the climate is punishing us with greater frequency and greater severity. A second thing that's going on, and I'll hold this because I'm going to hope you'll ask me again about this later. A second thing that's going on is there are more trusted voices in America who are educating their constituents about the fact that climate change is here and now and it's and it's you know it's bad for us and you can see it with your own eyes if you pay attention and so it's the confluence of those two factors that I think is driving this heightened public engagement I would also like to hear about local perspectives on climate change and sustainability Bridie your research has dealt specifically with communities in Maine why is it so important to engage local communities in sustainability efforts yeah, I so, I so appreciate this question. And honestly, in, in preparing for this, felt like this could be a podcast in and of itself, maybe a series of, of podcasts that engage, more fully engage the question of community engagement, because there, there are a lot of important reasons for taking a community engaged approach to climate change focused work. And I just wanted to highlight a couple that in the context of the work that I've been doing, and as it connects with environmental communication have, have been really crucial. So environmental communication as a field includes scholars who are deeply interested in, but also very concerned about a whole host of complex problems that occur at this intersection of communication, which includes human communication, but as Jose mentioned, goes well beyond human-centered communication to think about more than human communication and environmental change. So, you know, we're, we're concerned about phenomena like environmental racism, which names the disparate impact of pollution and climate change on minoritized communities, many different forms of colonialism and how those intersect with environmental processes like nuclear colonialism. This is work that Danielle Andres has done for a long time and energy colonialism. Catalina Dionis has been doing a lot of work on this and has a recent book out on it. Whole host is related to natural resource management and the kinds of decisions that managers have to make in the context of 
widespread biodiversity loss, invasive species, wilderness conservation. I could go on and on, and, and the point is not to elaborate these problems, but that in this context, and, and especially in the work that I've been doing that focuses on the intersections of coastal resilience, river restoration, environmental justice, we've found that we really can't like wrap our minds around any of these problems if we're not engaging multiple forms of knowledge. So like this includes the multiple forms of knowledge that you have in academic institutions, you know, working across disciplines. They have many collaborations with colleagues in the biophysical sciences, in other social science fields. We've increasingly been engaging with arts and humanities to be able to open up that space for artistic practice and be able to connect with communities on their own terms, which is vitally important. But we've also found that connecting with the authentic knowledge that community members themselves bring to any of these issues really helps understand the nature of what's going on and what would be both ethical and workable solutions. So like, you know, to really center the questions of equity in, in any kind of solution that we're trying to develop. So for me in doing this work with clamming communities, I do a lot of work on, on coastal resilience and adaptation, climate change and adaptation. Clamors are essential in helping us understand what's going on on the ground how are they already feeling the effects of, of climate change? Bringing that kind of local knowledge to bear on the identification of policy solutions that in doing this work over a number of years, we act, we've actually been able to scale up these kinds of solutions to a statewide scale, making changes to, for example, how aquaculture is regulated in ways that make that process more equitable for people who are trying to advance climate adaptation. In the work that we've been doing with representatives from natural resource departments in Wabanaki tribal nations, including the Penobscot Nation and the Holton Band of Maliseet Indians, we've found real value in finding ways to center indigenous knowledge, really connect with indigenous worldviews, but, but to do so in a way that is very careful about cultural appropriation. And so, you know, thinking about what is meaningful participation for indigenous peoples in this work. So knowledge, you know, connecting with these diverse forms of knowledge, which also includes different forms of governance knowledge as well. We have partnerships with people in state agencies, and they give us so much information about the governance context and, you know, what's even possible from a policy standpoint. So all of that is, has been really essential. We've also found that, you know, academic institutions are in a unique position to really facilitate bringing these diverse forms of knowledge together. And the group of us who are working in the Mitchell Center for Sustainability Solutions also really feel like academic institutions have a responsibility to show up for these kinds of partnerships and, and figure out how to find the knowledge that we need to bring to bear on these problems and create spaces for people to participate in ways that actually work for them. And then I guess the final thing I'll raise is, is more of a personal note. I've been doing this work now for, for more than a decade. And I've just found that, you know, working in community partnerships enriches my life as an academic. You know, there are a lot of pressures in academia, and, and many of these pressures are intensifying because of these global changes. But the kinds of relationships that form through community partnerships can be incredibly meaningful. I mean, it moves from research subjects to partners to friends. And there's that trust and mutual understanding that both enriches the work, but also makes life as an academic more enjoyable and meaningful. Jose, you've also looked at how communities have addressed climate change. You've examined a specific indigenous organization located at the border between Ecuador and Colombia. 
How do the members of that organization communicate about climate change and how important is it to pay attention to the ways in which indigenous people make sense of and deal with climate change? My collaboration was with the Gran Familia Agua Binacional. So it is an indigenous organization that is located at the border between Ecuador and Colombia. And you know what Bright said about collaborating with, with organizations, just you reminded me how humbling and inspiring was my collaboration with, with this organization. Because um, not only it offered me the opportunity to, to challenge my, myself as a scholar, but also to actually investigate something that I was always interested in, is how basically communities who do not speak the dominant language make sense of Western scientific knowledge or global concepts like sustainability, development, and climate change. So in the case of the Awa people, the native language is Awapit. It is an endangered language because they have uh, gone through an accelerated process of acculturization and cultural harmonization. And there are only 40,000 people who speak the language according to the last survey. So it's a language that increasingly is, is in danger. So language is central to understand the work of this, uh, of this organization uh, because members communicate uh, and how they communicate about climate change. I would say that it is also crucial to acknowledge that indigenous people's communication and how they make meaning about these concepts and climate change in particular occurs within the politics of, of science communication. That is to say that despite the calls for more inter or cross-cultural communication and collaboration, environmental decision and policymaking still privileges Western scientific knowledge over indigenous traditional knowledge. And I believe the work of my colleagues here is kind of addressing that directly, which is great because that's, I believe that's the, the way to, to go in these matters. So addressing this this uh, lack of balance in this relationship has been central for, for environmental communication scholars for a while already. With that being said, uh, while there are specific words used to translate development and sustainability in Awapit, they use the word what milna, which basically translates into good living. So the notion of buen vivir that was very, it's well known in Latin America that it started in Ecuador and then in Bolivia. And there is some, it has become part of the, the environmental discourse of, of several indigenous um, movements, environmental movements in South America, especially. But still, you know, the, the concept of climate change for, for our community is an alien concept. You know, not because these communities do not have the knowledge or capability to understand the scientific definition of climate change. This, this is not the case. It is because the scientific definition is perceived as disembodied from their territory. So what do I mean by disembodied definition of climate change? I mean that the notions like ozone cape and atmospheric changes and greenhouse effects, you know, are abstractions that, that do not resonate with the bodily experience of the communities and the changes that they, they experience and are happening in their territory's larger body because they consider the, their territory as part of their body. You know, it's, it's the larger body of, of, of connections and, and, and engagements with, uh, with the more than human world within that territory. So uh, what people as indigenous people make sense and communicate about climate change by emplacing its definition. And I believe this is very interesting what Ed mentioned about how people are start shifting, you know, their understanding of climate change because it's become closer. You know, it becomes part of their immediacy, part of their, their environment. So it, the same is happening, you know, because the meaning making of, of climate change for Awa people is inextricably linked to Awa's territoriality. Territoriality demands, you know, attending to their ecocultural ways of living and their sociopolitical forms of organization at the same time. To emplace a global concept such as climate change and sustainability and development, for that matter, entails uh, kind of foregrounding the central non-human actor, you know, the territory in their terms. 
and to integrate the physical transformation of the territory to the ways of thinking, knowing, and valuing the world. So the idea of emplacing a concept, you know, opens possibilities to, to express different, different ways of feeling, even a notion of feel or sense differently. So this, this is a rhetorical move, you know, in terms of, of emplacing a concept suggests actually a, a very experiential and embodied place-based conceptualizations of climate change, you know, that complements, but at the same time questions conceptualizations of climate change that tend to only feature Western scientific uh, conceptualizations of, of what, this, what this concept means, right? So based on the experience that I had with collaborating with, with the Awa, indigenous Awa people, I think that to pay attention to the ways indigenous people make sense of and deal with climate change is necessary, I would argue, in two ways. Right? The first, because it confronts us scholars and communication everywhere with the fact that we are far from justice and inclusion. You know? While progress has been made in terms of, of symbolic and material acknowledgements of indigenous rights, we still need to work on ways to challenge the exclusionary deployment of very specialized jargon that appears to, what I said, you know, disembody the meaning of, of, of climate change from, from place or territory. And this, I believe, risks undermining indigenous people's grounded and lived experiences of the effects of climate disruption. But also, you know, this marginalization of, of indigenous organizations is still very prevalent if we consider that indigenous organizations that directly work with communities are still organizations at the margins, right? This marginality, especially in, in the places I work, results from their geographical location, inevitably. So, you know, most of them are not located in urban spaces. You know, these organizations have limited access to technology due to limited or inexistent infrastructure and also suffer from digital illiteracy, right? But most relevant to what I'm trying to, to convey here is that these organizations use a non-dominant language as a central element of their collective identity and struggles. You know, in the case of the, the Awa people, they, they speak Awapit, you know, the majority of the communities you know, that are not engaging with, with mestizo communities or with the government, they usually use the native language. So these points bring me to, to kind of the second reason that what I think we must, must pay attention to indigenous understanding and conceptualizations of, of environmental discourses such as climate change is we must attend to non-dominant languages. You know, it's, it's, it's something that environmental communication scholars should engage more vehemently, I would say. And to do so, we must engage with, I would say, an expanded notion of, of translation, you know, that it is not only in linguistic terms, but, you know, as a communication practice and also an, as historicist inquiry, which means basically we need to think about translation as intrinsically decolonial. No, it is not a metaphor, not using as a metaphor, the coloniality not as a metaphor, but actually as a way to carve out ident new identities, relationships, places, and, and agencies in, in our relationships, right? So in this sense, I think collaborating with indigenous communities and scholars, of course, is crucial to, to environmental communication insofar as we must continue reflecting on ways to address the uncritical use of terms such as sustainability, development, and climate change, you know, based on assumptions seeing as translatable across context and whose meaning are inequivocal and regardless of the specific situations of the language. I think the conversation about language that you're having is really interesting to me because as I was working with some individuals who will be on the opening session panel at convention this year, a lot of what they wanted to talk about was language and keeping the language of their tribes and of their people 
and ensuring that other people knew how to communicate with them. Because we're, we're going to be talking in the opening session at convention, if you're not aware, about Native Seattle and a lot of the different issues that they faced in that community. But one of the things that they were very focused on talking about was language and getting people to understand the ways that they see the world and the ways that they communicate about a variety of things. And I have to say that wasn't one of the things I thought that would come up when I started having that conversation with them. But language was very important to almost everyone that I spoke to in that community. And so we're going to, we're definitely going to be having a conversation about language at convention. So it's really interesting to me as someone who doesn't always think in that direction. I think very much in terms of quantitative data and things like that. So I don't often see things that way immediately. So it's always a great conversation for me to have and one for me to, you know, I really enjoy hearing you talk about that. Okay. So let's shift gears just a little bit. Ed, you helped create the Center for Climate Change Communication at George Mason, which was established in the fall of 2007. I was at GMU at the time. And I remember that being a really exciting time period, not just for faculty, but for students, many of us who were studying you know, health and risk, we're excited to explore how our interests linked or connected to or were impacted by things like climate change, because that's not something that most of us had really studied before. So, you know, we thought that that was really cool from a student standpoint. But can you talk a little bit about the impetus for establishing the center as well as its goals and how the center has grown over time? Yeah, happy to. Thank you. So prior to coming to Mason, I was happily doing important public health work. Right. I was fighting the tobacco industry. I was I was trying to assure Americans that that vaccines are safe and and in their children's best interests. Earlier in my career, I had had worked on the, the global HIV epidemic and all of these are incredibly important public health goals, public health programs, ways of spending time. I never had a a five seconds of a midlife crisis, but then climate change found me and convinced me that this is really the, the mother of all public health threats going forward. If we don't take immediate action to stabilize our climate, humans are in a world of pain going forward. And that's when I decided to come to Mason and and create a Center for Climate Change Communication. Why Mason? Because Mason has extraordinary breadth and depth in climate science. And I was a public health guy who knew just a a little bit, enough about climate change to recognize it as our, our biggest public health problem that we faced. And like Jose and like Bridie, you know, I take a lot of gratification in actually doing work that matters, getting involved in people's lives and working with them to to try to make things better. So I set up the Center for Climate Change Communication as a highly applied research center. We sometimes call it a think and do tank. The thinking part is the research. The doing part is once we've identified something in our research that we think might make a difference, we explore it. We test out whether or not there's any there there. So coming back to our survey work, in our very first Climate Change in the American Mind survey, we learned that TV weathercasters are a highly trusted source of information about global warming by adult Americans. Who knew? I mean, literally, that came as a complete surprise out of our first survey. 
and a local TV weathercaster, a very senior meteorologist in, a, in the Washington area, he contacted me when he saw that and he said, Ed, I'd like to come talk to you about this. His name was Joe Witte. He eventually came and uh, entered our graduate degree program. You might remember him, Lakeisha. But Joe basically said, look, your survey has shown me that, that me and my colleagues, weathercasters, we have a real opportunity to help people understand climate change better, by understand the personal relevance of it. So Joe and I and Heidi Cullen and others, we, we decided to give it a go. And we found a weathercaster in Columbia, South Carolina, a man named Jim Gandy, who wanted to actually test out this idea. We helped Jim report 13 local climate stories, local to Columbia, South Carolina, over the course of a year. We conducted audience surveys before and after that year. And we learned that, that folks, local news viewers in Columbia, who watched Jim and his station, the CBS affiliate, WLTX, became much more likely over the course of that year to recognize climate change as their problem than were people who watched the other local news stations. So right away, we knew we had something there. There's some real potential. We have scaled this program up. The program is called Climate Matters. We now have almost 1,100 weathercasters, almost half of the weathercasters across America, who we help by providing them with localized climate reporting materials that let them tell compelling stories and show members of their viewing audience how, how the climate is changing in their backyard now. That's a really great example of, a, of, of our sort of think and do tank mentality. We recognized an opportunity. We explored it. It looked like it had some real potential. So we scaled it up nationwide. Coming back to my focus on public health, I'm currently very involved in trying to help the health community in America and around the world explain climate change as a human health problem. And perhaps even more importantly, explain climate solutions as profound human health opportunities. Because, you know, one thing that our colleagues in, in the field of behavioral economics have taught us all is that we humans, we tend to be impatient and unwilling to make investments that won't pay off for a long time. And most people think about climate solutions as involving making in investments that won't pay off for a long time. And therefore they become reluctant to make those investments. But when we reframe climate solutions as health solutions, talking about how accelerating that transition to clean energy will almost overnight help us clean up our air and our water, which will almost overnight allow us all to enjoy better health, will allow children with asthma to be less prone to have serious asthma attacks. It will allow our seniors who have chronic lung conditions, chronic obstructive lung disease, for example, to live more easily without having to spend a part of their day on an oxygen tank. So the beauty of helping health professionals find their voice on climate change, and again, we, we focus on health professionals because our audience research told us, showed us that the public trusts health professionals above and beyond any other category of professionals in America and around the world. So helping health professionals find their voice on this issue allows us to once again, take it out of being a future issue or asking people, communities, states, nations to make investments that will pay off in the future. And we're asking them to make investments that will pay off today and pay off primarily in the community that makes the investment. So 
I live in Maryland. And when my community in Maryland, when we take actions to decarbonize our energy supplies, we're the primary beneficiaries of that cleaner air and that cleaner water and that better health. And it and we get those benefits almost immediately. So that's what we're up to with at our center, Center for Climate Change Communication at George Mason. You know, we do research to try to identify actionable insights, and then we we test out you know, the potential impact of those insights. And if they have impact, we try to scale them up or or to pass them off to other organizations who are capable of scaling up those communication programs. Brady, you're currently working on an NSF-funded project called the Maine eDNA Project. Can you tell me a bit about that project and how it will help researchers and educators better understand Maine's coastal ecosystem and what that can mean for the local community? Yeah, sure. So the main eDNA project is funded through, as you mentioned, the National Science Foundation grant that came through NSF's EPSCoR program. And the EPSCoR program stands for the Established Program to Stimulate Competitive Research. This is a special designation within the National Science Foundation, which certain states, there's somewhere around 26 states that are qualified to apply for EPSCoR grants. And these are the states that need additional support in terms of research capacity. I've been involved in a number of what are called track one EPSCoR grants, including doing my PhD with a large EPSCoR project. I had a postdoc with EPSCoR. I had an early career grant that was an EPSCoR funded grant. And, and now the eDNA project. And I, I keep showing up for these large and sometimes messy, complicated collaborative projects because in terms of NSF funding, the EPSCoR program is trying to build the capacity for both basic and applied research that's you know, a hallmark of the kind of research that you see at major research universities, but also engage in the outreach and workforce development that can really strengthen those broader impacts that NSF is also deeply interested in. So I think EPSCoR creates this unique context for, for that kind of funded research. And I found it really rewarding in multiple ways to be involved in these types of projects, including in the main eDNA project. So this project is intending to advance Maine as a leader for environmental genomics research. Environmental DNA refers to the bits of genetic material that will slough off of living organisms. Now, the lobster biologists that I work with will probably point out that you can also get it from the guts of lobsters, but that's that's kind of splitting <laughs> splitting hairs. But it's it's DNA that circulates within the, the environment and that can tell you a lot about environmental change. It can address questions about species distribution and when new species are coming in to a region. The Gulf of Maine, as, as you may know, is is warming than faster than many uh, oceanic bodies on the planet. And so we're already seeing a host of changes and people working in many different sectors, you know, asking eDNA focused questions. And so it's been through my work with communities that when I was invited to join the eDNA project, I immediately recognized the value of developing a technology like this. Like folks are working on river restoration and, you know, especially in the Penobscot Nation, the Holton Band of Malice Indians wanting to understand the impacts of the restoration efforts, dam removals and whether alewives and salmon are coming back, are interested in, in using eDNA to, to detect those kinds of changes. Clamors who I'm working with in coastal communities who are addressing water pollution, really widespread problem in Maine, are using a pretty outdated technique called microbial source tracking 
that eDNA has the potential to really transform and make more effective. And so the work that I'm doing on the project is trying to facilitate those kinds of applications because we've learned that while we may have a commitment to transdisciplinarity, to like doing knowledge in ways that really connect with societal action, it doesn't happen by magic. That like it's really important to have people on the project who are paying attention to the formation of those partnerships and how to help people work across disciplines and engage communities in effective and equitable ways. So our communication and team science research is aimed at studying how communication is shaping the eDNA project, but then doing so in such a way that we're feeding back into it so that we can really create a learning organization or an adaptive research organization that can change over time. And in that, we've, we've really developed a focus on an ethics of eDNA. And what we're trying to do here is push on this discourse that you have in, in some of these collaborations that emphasize communication effectiveness of like getting past our jargon, right? And using the terms that work, which is important. And we're doing some of that, but to really center questions of ethics in mind and in right ways. I'm sure a lot of listeners are wondering about how they can advocate for sustainability in their own communities or maybe even in their classrooms. Jose, you've written about the inside out classroom and its relevance to environmental communication. Why is the inside out classroom a useful pedagogical tool to help students understand human ecological relations? Thank you for bringing the the topic of pedagogy and and education in general. I've been very interested in this topic for several years. I started teaching back in, in my home country, Ecuador, you know, at high school level and then in Colombia at the same time. So I've always been interested in developing different kind of educational models. The, particularly the, the inside out classroom model was initially um, elaborated by, by Tema Milstein. And, and I worked with her for, for several years during my, my doctoral program. And basically this model, it's kind of tried to respond to Robert Cox's uh, call for actively engage the field's ethical duty. You know, and, and I believe that connects with what Brady just said about, you know, the ethical consideration of the kind of communication we are engaging with. So this model has sprouted in, kind of in different directions. To me, the inside-out classroom model seeks to co-create the classroom as a transformative space within which we can raise ecocultural consciousness, discuss the ideals and paradoxes of democracy, so it becomes a very political space. It's a space of experiencing empowerment you know, the actions that we can take. But most importantly, my teaching usually, what I take is how can we envision other possible worlds, right? And I believe that's the key idea for, for this model. Central to this model, you know, the classroom works as a, a, as a space that basically we start challenging the dualities, you know, such as human nature, culture, nature, human, animal, and so forth, you know. And one way the inside-out classroom model counters this and interrupts these separations is by foregrounding the more than human world as co-communicator with whom we are in constant process of international communication. Lately, in, in this particular model, I have incorporated one concept that you can find kind of in the ecocultural identity volume, that is the concept of the humilocene that was put forward by David Abram. And the idea of the humilocene is what he calls a new epoch of humility. And this concept of the humiliation steps from both, you know, humiliation and humility, you know, for, for humans. So in that term, you know, the, the humiliation uh, is a regenerative and ethical and empathetic framework within which kind of multiple ecologies on sensory experiences interlocked. And also it is a epoch that demands a, a long due dialogue between ancient and renewed ways of being human 
as a species, as animals, as sensory bodies. And most importantly, I, I would say that using the humilocene as a framework allows me in my classes to, to bring attention to and, and break from the prevalent kind of contemporary, even narcissistic human posture, you know, that is threatening our existence in, in our planet. So the inside-out classroom model also entails kind of acting against of what I call, is called academic schizophrenia, you know, being one person in the classroom and being another outside of the classroom. You know, in other words, that is why the kind of the, the inside-out classroom model in this model, both you kind know, of students and the instructor are learners in the process. If you kind of separate this model, you know, the insight in the equation you know, refers to the inner knowledge and the organic forms of awareness that grow from the learner's everyday experiences with both you know, human and more than human worlds. And together, learners, you know, students and instructors, think of ways to embrace shared anti and antagonistic inner concerns, you know, passions. And, the way we our bodies feel in, in particular in particular ecologies, feelings, thoughts, and values regarding our future in, in the earth. The out in the equation referred to ways to extend the knowledge building and engagement outside the classroom walls and the institutional boundaries. And I believe what Ed was describing about what they're doing in their center, that's that's a perfect example of kind of the implication of this kind of pedagogy. One central component of the inside-out classroom pedagogy is, is action and practice, inevitably. So I mean, as an integral part of, the, of this model, you know, is developing critical and ecological thinking to formulate ideas that address problems and opportunities to find that the students find their communities and the ecologies within the 12, practically. And to close, you know, this, the inside-out classroom model can be useful for, it's a useful pedagogical tool to help the students learn and understand human ecological relations because it guides learners to embrace the inward path to attain outwards connection. And that's why this particular methodology starts from your very embodied experience in the teaching, right? So what this model tries to do is basically to ground knowledge in, in students' experiences, but also at the same time, we're very critical about how our bodies move and experience and connect with the larger body of, of the ecology, right? And I could offer kind of several examples about kind of this, this methodology could, could work. So, so for instance, you have a, and it's, it has become very common in environmental communication as a pedagogy, you know, going into, into field words or doing very embodied experience in that matter. To give you an example, you know, so a brief example of what I, I've done so far is I always been curious about what I called the snack culture, you know, here in the United States. This is something that it was very impactful to me to see that People eat all the time. It's, it's, it's very impactful to me. Right? And when I went to, the, to a field work with, with students, we did a hike you know, to a very beautiful cliff in the Santa Rosa Island here in the Channel Islands. And we have gotten breakfast around 8.30. The hike was one hour. So the first thing that I noticed is there was a lot of snacks provided for the students. And I could see the frenzy of the students just trying to choose from all the packages that they were, you know, they were choosing and throwing away what they didn't like or they didn't like. So just, just gather and gather, you know. Again, to me, I'm not from here, so it's very impactful to see that, that kind of frenzy to get the food. So, but it was 8.30 in the morning. We took the hike, one hour, one hour hike. We arrived to the place. And when we arrived, you know, it was, this was this opening. You could see the beautiful kind of uh, the blue colors of the, of the sea, this beautiful black, this beautiful cliff with black rocks, you know, against the waves were crashing. 
But when I arrived there, I was kind of enjoying being in place at that moment. And suddenly I started hearing noises, you know, on the back. And what I could hear was students just eating snacks. You know, the sound of the, of the packages were kind of very disturbing. You know, the crushing and the cracking, the, crush, 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 this, the sound was very disturbing. And I noticed, I, I thought to myself, you know, we've been only hiking for one hour. You know, these are kind of very strong, able bodies, students that you can hike for an hour. But immediately, you know, place was not in their mind. Right? So that kind of engagement with the body and with the pushing the boundaries of that is something that brought me to my attention. And I said, you know, I'm going to restrict the amount of snacks. I'm going to actually put a schedule when you can snack or not. Right? In order to actually move time and space in or include time and space and body into the pedagogy. Because I, I do believe that the only way that we can actually start seeing the changes that we are experiencing around is precisely by, by noticing what are the changes our body also experiencing when we face these radical changes and for the effects of climate change. So the inside out classroom model and allows me to have these kind of approaches in order to challenge students' perceptions and perspectives in very bodily manner. And I think we're to the question that you were thinking of earlier. Could you speak to the role that younger activists, such as like Greta Thunberg, are taking on? And how are they shaping public communication about climate change? Yeah, you know, isn't it, isn't it a wonderful and amazing? And don't we, don't I as an adult, owe it to them to do everything I can to be their ally and to support them? And the answer to that is yes, I do. And I do try to support them. And for example, you know, we're trying to create alliance between health professionals and youth activists because this is, you know, it's sort of a perfect alliance between those people who professionally have decided their role in our world is to look after our health and well-being and our future and those people who they are doing their best to look after and who are telling us you're not doing enough. But let me let me take a quick research story. So in our surveys, our Climate Change in the American Mind surveys, we often ask, as I've already intimated, we often ask about how much do you trust different categories of professionals? Or sometimes we even ask how much, how familiar are you and how much do you trust as a source of information about climate change, specific people. Greta was one of those specific people we asked our respondents about a couple of years ago. I don't remember exactly which survey that was. But a master's student at University of Cambridge in the UK, Anna Saberwall, she used that data to answer that exact question. Like, what is the impact of Greta's advocacy on us, on her elders? And from a qualitative point of view, it's so obvious to me that she has a profound impact. For those of us who understand we are in the midst of a climate crisis, we look at her and we can't help but to be inspired and we can't help but to be challenged to do more, to do better. And Anna's analysis of our data was absolutely brilliant in terms of what it showed as the mechanism of exactly what it is about Greta and her advocacy that is so inspiring. So the more that people told us they were familiar with Greta, and there's a high degree of familiarity and trust. So essentially, the more people were familiar with her, the more they trusted her as a source of information about global warming. So the more familiar they were with her, the more likely they were to say, I intend to do better 
going forward to do better specifically in terms of engaging in collective actions, actions that will build political will, things like engaging with political candidates to make sure that they're actually going to take climate change seriously, you know, spending time working for political candidates who will take climate change seriously. So there was a direct course, Greta, to the degree to which we're familiar with her and her advocacy, it inspires us to intend to do more in terms of creating political will. And the mediating mechanism of that, the factor that influences and mediates the relationship between our belief in Greta and our intention to do better going forward is a sense of enhanced collective efficacy. She makes us feel like we can work together to do better, to do more. And that to me, that is a beautiful research story because it confirms what I see in front of my very eyes in the real world. And it's sort of from a theoretical perspective, it's very elegant because it teaches us that one person, one brave, in, in her case, one brave, relatively small person and young person can inspire a lot of us and make us believe that we can link arms, work together and get more done. And that's a beautiful story. I have a follow-up question just out of curiosity. I'm wondering if the person who did this study based on your work, does she happen to break that down by gender or age? And the reason that I ask is because it seems just from what I'm seeing amongst my kids' peers and my children are 15 and 17, is that people like specifically like Greta Thunberg make a bigger difference with the female population. And I have theories about why that could be, obviously, but does that bear out in research at all? You know, we didn't look at gender. We did look at age. We looked at political ideology. It's a fairly robust effect. The biggest thing is essentially people who are concerned about climate change are it helps them close the gap between their attitudes and their intentions, which is really helpful because those of us who study people for a living, we know there's often this huge gap between our attitudes and, and what we actually do. It's not at all surprising that you would notice that Greta would be more inspiring to young women than, than to young men because she's a heck of a role model, a heck of a role model for young women. And she's not the only one. Many of the most inspiring youth climate activists around the world are young women. And, you know, they inspire us all. But I, while I don't have any data to prove your, your instinct on this, your intuition, I suspect it's, it's dead on. Okay. Righty, you're also part of an NSF research traineeship NRT program in conservation science. Can you talk a little about what the NRT does and why transdisciplinary research is so important in addressing climate change? Sure. Listeners may be familiar with an earlier version of the NRT, which was called the IGERT, or the Integrated Graduate Education Research and Training Program. So the NRT is, is the next phase of, of that NSF program. And UMaine has the distinction of having three current NRTs. So we have one that's focused on Arctic science, another that connects with one health initiative, and the one I'm involved in focuses on training students in transdisciplinary approaches to conservation science. It's led by Dr. Sandra Diaristi Stone in the School of Forest Resources and involves a number of collaborators across the social and biophysical sciences 
as well as a whole host of conservation partners who have worked with us from the earliest stages of writing this grant into the development of the program itself and in hosting student internships and being involved in, in many aspects of this student training program. We have taken an open source approach to the development of this project. So if people are interested in learning more about this or are working on similarly developing transdisciplinary and interdisciplinary training programs on their own campuses, we have a whole host of resources that are available on our website, many of which are more like internal types of documents about program specifications and requirements and those kinds of things. Um, that we just want to share freely to try and encourage this type of program at other academic institutions. And though it's, it's focused on student training, it really does have a commitment to graduate student education We've also found ways to really connect our research with graduate student education. So in the project that, that I've been leading through the NRT, we've developed an organization called the Maine Shellfish Learning Network. And the mission of this organization is to promote learning leadership and equity across Maine and Wabanaki wild clam and mussel fisheries. I've had the great privilege of working with Gabby Hillier, who's a PhD student on the project, and her co-advisor, Dr. Tony Sutton, in advancing the development of this network that grows out of many previous years of doing work in shellfish co-management. And I point to that because Gabby recently had an experience that I think really helps identify one of the, the most important features of our approach to the NRT, and that is the development of these conservation internships. So Gabby had an internship this summer with an organization called Manamet, which is doing some really innovative work at the science policy interface in Maine, but also internationally. And she was able to do this internship in such a way that she advanced research that's feeding into her dissertation and conducted a series of interviews with people who have been working on climate adaptation projects, trying to essentially grow baby clams and running into some real policy barriers in their ability to do so. Of like these projects that are really about intertidal mudflat restoration are being regulated as aquaculture. And people who are trying to do this work have to go through this really extensive policy process that many rural Maine communities do not have the resources to try and navigate. It just takes too much time and energy. So she was able to do research in partnership with Manomet to understand this situation. The end of her internship, she actually presented a series of recommendations to the Shellfish Advisory Council, which is a state-level advisory body, and is now moving forward with actually enacting short and longer-term policy changes to try and address this, this major issue for coastal communities. So it's, it's really building capacity for graduate education, but also engaged research and, and sustainability-focused policy in pretty transformative ways. Thanks. I, I have literally no understanding of shellfishing or clamming or anything. So to hear you talk about this is really cool for me to hear. It's really interesting and a type of research that I would never be involved in because I have no idea how to do it. <laughs> you know, 10 years ago, I didn't either. I had never dug clams. I was doing this engaged research as part of my dissertation focused on a conservation action planning process. And this organization wanted to engage with clamors and get their perspective about conservation priorities in this region called Frenchman Bay, but couldn't get the clamors to show up to their meeting <laughs> um, because they were held at, you know, times that didn't work for clamors like low tide or in really kind of like more technical types of spaces. So I started showing up at their meetings 
instead, which were held in this rural town hall in Maine, and found myself stepping into a world I didn't know existed, but where clamors engage in really complex forms of, of negotiation and decision-making to try and figure out how do we sustain this way of life that has existed in this region for, for millennia. So it's, it's really a fascinating context. So you got into it by meeting people where they were, which is one of the first things you have to do, right? When we're trying to get a message across. It's what I'm always telling my students. <laughs> Okay, as we look ahead to the future of the planet and the fact that climate change may cause unprecedented challenges for future generations, can you speak to just how much communication matters when it comes to having a real and lasting impact on climate change? Communication matters, I would say, particularly if we think about the, the, the contemporary media ecology in which we are living, right? It's what is it's being called, you know, the post-truth media ecology, you know, this in where we have the proliferation of individual truths, you know, filtered with market interests and, and where there is no main avenue through which a trusted authority, you know, can definitely debunk malicious information or quote-unquote truths you know, that are circulating and, and not only forming but deforming the public sphere and the, and, and the public screen. So I would say that to have a real and lasting impact on climate change Specifically, you know, communication scholars and research must, must be cautious, I would say, to, on, on falling into the, you know, the media game of proliferation of truth, you know, filled by big data and the corporatization and marketization of strategic communication sometimes. And that might hinder some collaboration. And I believe, you know, the example that Brady said, you know, meeting people where they, where they are is one amazing step that I kind of I've been, I've been engaging with at the same time. But I would like to kind of in my, in usually in my, my research, I usually bring some uh, scholars from, from Latin America because I, I don't see them much, you know, in environmental communication scholarship. And so I would say that one way to avoid at least critically engaged with the overwhelming media centrism that sometimes communication research has, especially in the West, is to, to continue reflecting on how to advance three principles, you know, of what Arturo Escobar or other Latin American scholars call the pluriverse. And I've been kind of engaging with these ideas and wrapping my head around these ideas. So uh, Arturo Escobar kind of puts forward kind of three uh, design or redesign principles that I would like to almost almost quote him here because they are very interesting and I would like to, to convey my point clearly in, in this matter. So what he, these principles are, you know, the first one is what he calls the recommunalization of social life. And that is kind of is addressed to, to counter individualizing imperatives of human interaction. The second principle, he talks about the relocalization of activities uh, like food and health and education and the strengthening of local and regional economies to counter capitalism and globalization and foster convivial modes of living. And the third principle is the strengthening of collective local autonomies and direct forms of democracy. And what he means by that is kind of the intention of this is to lessen the dependence on norms established by, by expert, experts and the state and to critically uh, revalorize local knowledges and values and promote kind of horizontal political strategies based on of people's self-organization. And when I've been hearing to my two colleagues here, I believe even though it is not explicitly you know, mentioned, I believe their work kind of speaks directly to these three principles. You know, and I believe I know the work we, we are doing, not only in the classroom, but also in engaging with communities, I believe could instill communication with, with the hope and care we all need right now. So my background before I turned to communication was in environmental studies and conservation biology as my master's degree is in. 
And I, I found myself backing into communication because so many of the complex problems that many of us have spoken to today are about communication. They constitute these problems and our ability to do anything about them requires communication, multiple forms of communication. When I first came to environmental communication as a field, I think I, I really was in search of the kind of framing and messages, especially about climate change, you know, that Ed's work has, has really helped expand. And I still think that that is crucially important to pay attention to the, the ways in which we frame messages and, and connect with people authentically. I've also over time really increasingly been interested in and, and focused on discourses of climate change and, and how the ways we talk about climate change are also about power. And this is where I think Jose's work in grounding understandings of climate change in the discourses of local and indigenous communities is so essential to really understand what climate change means on their terms and to start there. So that, that careful critical attention to discourse and how dominant climate discourse plays out in local communities is really essential. You know, we name climate change as a problem or we talk about like, you know, the urgency or the unprecedentedness of climate change and how we need to act now to think about the kinds of logics that that reproduces, especially like logics of time that can be very linear and reinforce neoliberal ways of, of relating to each other and the earth. The way that unprecedentedness forgets the massive devastating consequences of colonization and indigenous genocide and slavery, that climate change is a current manifestation of these very old logics of exploitation that, that we really need to turn our attention to, to transform these interlinked systems of oppression. And here I'm thinking with Kyle White's argument about crisis epistemology, as well as Catherine Yusoff and Tiffany Lathabo King's work that makes similar points. So those are some of the questions that I'm, I'm currently grappling with. And, and what does it mean to address climate change at the level of those kinds of discourses and logics? Uh, and how does that change how we, we, we then collaborate and who we collaborate with? Ed, do you want to wrap that up for us? I do. Thank you. And I'm so glad I get to speak after listening to Bridie's answer and Jose's answer. And that is over the past hour, I've heard a number, all of you actually talking about the need to reimagine, envisioning other possible futures, other possible worlds, colonization, such important constructs, such important parts of our reality, whether we know it or not. And I spend a lot of time trying to identify how the fossil fuel industry has colonized my mind. And I believe I'm not alone. They happen to sort of stalk me on my Twitter account and every, everywhere in my life, I am stalked by greenwashing by the fossil fuel industry. And I, I'm sure I'm not alone. And so they are actively working to colonize my mind and to make it difficult for me to imagine a future that isn't powered by fossil fuel. <laughs> which, but yet we desperately need to imagine a future and create, get busy creating a future that isn't powered by fossil fuel. And our most powerful tool in doing that is communication. We're not solving this problem. 
this incredible interrelated set of problems unless we find ways of using communication more effectively to help people identify the colonization that is you know, the intentional colonization of their ways of thinking and to understand and imagine that a better futures are possible and all we need to do is get busy creating them. Great. Thank you for joining me today on Communication Matters. I hope that you found this discussion about environmental communication enlightening. In NCA News... There's still time to register for the NCA 107th Annual Convention to be held November 18 through 21st in Seattle, Washington. Members can save on convention registration by registering before November 14 at natcom.org slash register. Attendees must be fully vaccinated to attend the convention and should bring proof of vaccination with them to Seattle. Visit natcom.org slash convention dash and dash COVID to learn more about the vaccination requirement and NCA's precautions related to the COVID-19 pandemic. We hope to see you at the NCA annual convention next month. Also in NCA news, NCA recently published its 2020-21 Academic Job Listings in Communication Report. The report draws on data from job postings in the online NCA Career Center and NCA's daily ComNotes email blast. Specialists in strategic communication, PR, and advertising were the most sought after, accounting for nearly 13% of the total number of postings. Read the full report at natcom.org slash reports dash discipline. And listeners, I hope you'll tune in for the next episode of Communication Matters, the NCA podcast, on November 11th. The episode will focus on the legacy of NCA's Learning Outcomes in Communication or LOC's project. LOC project participants, David Bodery, Elizabeth Goring, Lynn Disbrow, and David Marshall will join the podcast to discuss the development of the LOCs five years ago, how the LOCs have influenced curriculum development and communication departments, and the continuing value of the LOCs. Be sure to engage with us on social media by liking us on Facebook, following NCA on Twitter and Instagram, and watching us on YouTube. And before you go, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to listen in as we discuss emerging scholarship, established theory, and new applications, all exploring just how much communication matters in our classrooms, in our communities, and in our world. The National Communication Association is the preeminent scholarly association devoted to the study and teaching of communication. Founded in 1914, NCA is a thriving group of thousands from across the nation and around the world who are committed to a collective mission to advance communication as an academic discipline. In keeping with NCA's mission to advance the discipline of communication, 
NCA has developed this podcast series to expand the reach of our member scholars' work and perspectives. Communication Matters is hosted by NCA Director of Academic and Professional Affairs, Lakeisha Anderson. The podcast, organized at the National Office in downtown Washington, D.C., is produced by Assistant Director of External Affairs and Publications, Chelsea Bowes, with writing support from Director of External Affairs and Publications, Wendy Fernando, and Content Development Specialist, Grace Hebert. Thank you for listening. See you next time on Communication Matters.